Chapter 8 of In Seven Stages, A Flying Trip Around the World by Elizabeth Bisland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Holly Jensen. Chapter 8, Last Stage. It is a vividly bright day in January 1890, the 16th. There is a tingling crispness in the air, as if it were early autumn, a slight frostiness that chills the skin but does not penetrate the veins. Rather, the deep breaths of this keen, pure sea ozone make the blood pulse with a swift, delicious warmth, like a plunge into cold water. We are anchored at Brindisi, the ancient Brundisium of the Romans, a town more than twenty-five centuries old, but which does not by any means look its age. It does not appear particularly attractive either from the wharves, and I am more than ever certain, as I always have been certain, that I could never agree with the haughty provincial who preferred to be the first in Brundisium rather than the second in Rome. Indeed, all efforts now are bent on being first out of Brundisium, as the train leaves within the hour. The Britannia goes on and around to Portsmouth, but the English government runs a train down through France and Italy to meet the P&O steamers, and thus gain five days in the arrival of the Indian and Australian mails. This mail train carries one passenger coach for the benefit of personages from the colonies who may be in haste to reach home, and if there are not a sufficient number of these distinguished servants of the empire to fill the car, more ordinary travelers can occupy the vacant berths by cabling ahead and securing them. I have taken this precaution at Salon, and find there will be no difficulty in the matter, provided I can get my luggage through the customs in time." It is almost impossible to get anything done. The whole ship is in an uproar. Mails and luggage are being disembarked. Many passengers are leaving for a tour through Italy before finally returning to England, fearful of the winter fogs and of the influenza raging there. Italians, with cocked hats and imperial importance of manner, are bullying everyone and getting things into a hopeless tangle. My luggage is finally marked as passed. A porter is hired to transport it. I go off to attend to the visé of tickets, dispatching of cables, and other minor matters, and arrive ten minutes before the advertised departure of the train. No luggage. I fling out of the car, rush back again to the ship, and discover the missing possessions in the hands of a pig-headed Italian who insists they have not been properly examined, and demands the keys. Various necessary additions to my wardrobe during the voyage have so enlarged the contents of my little box that only careful packing and the emphatic sitting down upon it of the stewardess and myself have induced it to shut at all. Now this amiable official insists, despite the fact that it goes under seal and bond straight through to England, upon opening it and strewing my garments about the deck. I hope I did not forget the dignity a gentlewoman should preserve under the most trying of circumstances, but I fancy that my tones, while low, were concentrated, and that the little American I used was frequent and fluent and free, for the man turned pale and wavered. 
I snatched up my belongings, flung them in pell-mell, jumped upon the box, snapped to the hasp, and ran off with a porter towards the train, blank despair in my heart. Happily, Italian trains are not bound down by narrow interpretations of timetables, and I do succeed in catching it, with the luggage and some few tattered remnants of a once nice temper. It is very destructive of the mental equilibrium to lose the temper so thoroughly, especially if one is out of practice, and it is fully an hour before the exceeding beauty of the country through which we are passing begins to have its soothing effect and to make me fain to forgive the Italians because of Italy. On our right is the Adriatic, blue as lapis lazuli and gay with flocking sails. Here and there lie little snow-white towns along its shores, and between are the gray olive orchards that have something strangely human in their gnarled grotesqueness. Even in flying by one sees flashes of fantastic gargoyle-like resemblances to persons one has known, caricatured into impossible contortions, as if by some medieval humorousness. It is not difficult to comprehend how people who lived among olive groves developed dryad superstitions and created legends of flying women transformed into trees. The English government pays the Italian government a large subsidy for this train and the swift passage of the mails, but the ubiquitous person who attends to all our needs is porter, guard, steward, cook, and brakeman in one, has his own ideas on the subject of haste, and acts accordingly. When we reach a town where he has friends, he goes out, quietly winds us up like a waterbury watch, dismounts, and is received with affectionate enthusiasm by a little crowd on the platform. He inquires solicitously after each one's kin unto the fourth and fifth generation, gives his careful attention to all the local gossip, and retails the news he has been gathering all along the line. When he can no longer hear or tell some new thing, he remembers our existence, climbs once more upon his perch, lets us run down with a sudden whirr, and we go on our way. At mealtimes he retires into a tiny den amidships, and from a space but little larger than a matchbox produces delightful soups and salads, excellent coffee, well-cooked game, baskets of twisted Italian bread, wine, and oranges. At night he arranges our sleeping berths, and I think would perform barber duties and assist with our toilets if called upon to do so. He is a fatigued and blasé personage who looks as if chronically deprived of his due allowance of sleep, and he evidently regards the traveling public as a helpless, nervous creature always in a peevishly ridiculous hurry. We begin to climb into the mountains, and it grows very cold. Oddly angled vineyards hang precariously to the steep sides of the heights, propped into place by dams of stone that keep the soil from sliding downhill. Queer villages are tucked into clefts, with streets that are merely narrow stairs. Now and again we flash by the bold outlines of a ruined castle crowning a crag, the site always chosen with so much discretion that one wonders not only how enemies ever got in, but how the owners themselves ever emerged, unless they fell out. A film of snow appears here and there, and the cold intensifies. 
suddenly we catch a glimpse of white heights outlined against the blue we are among the alps and the mount Cenis tunnel is not far away a space of darkness of thundering clattering echoes and then france everything is quite different all at once a fine new fortress commands the tunnel the station is better built larger and in better repair than those we have seen in italy the customs officer a well-set-up and good-looking frenchman in a smart uniform inquires politely if we have anything to declare and when we answer in the negative sets his heels together gives a profound salutation and vexes us no more everywhere is an air of greater prosperity thrift and alertness the train does not stop to admit of gossiping and goes at added speed telegrams have been following me along the route concerning the possibility of catching a ship at Havre. the train is rather behind time and unless the transatlantic will consent to delay her departure for an hour or two it will be useless to attempt to cover the space between villeneuve paris and Havre before to-morrow at seven there is hope however that she will wait and Friday night, some two hours after midnight, the guard rouses me to deliver a telegram which says I must be ready at four to change cars for Paris. This means leaving my box. It is under seal for London, and crossing the ocean with the few belongings in a traveling bag. I rise and dress quietly, scribble a few notes of farewell to such of my fellow passengers as have been especially courteous, and am all ready when we halt at Villeneuve. A young Frenchman, agent for Cook's Tourist Bureau in Paris, has come to meet me, but brings the discouraging intelligence that the ship has refused to wait and that there is no chance of catching her. It is not until reaching America that I discover this is a mistake, and that the transatlantic waited several hours, not only in the harbor, but when the tide made it necessary to cross the bar, lingering outside for another half hour in hopes I might still come, for the French captain was interested in my endeavor, and had received official permission for the delay. This change subjected me to inconvenience and to suffering, from the effects of which it took much time to entirely recover, for then began a most trying experience, from the strain of which not even the most vigorous constitution could escape unharmed. The cause of this false information was never satisfactorily ascertained. It, however, succeeded in lengthening the voyage four days. It is too late half-past four, to return to bed, so I throw myself on the couch and wait for day. A faint rhyme clouds the window when dawn breaks, but a breath dispels it, and outside are lovely Corot-like visions, pale, shadowy, gray, worth the lost sleep to have seen. Here and there a thin plume of smoke curls up against the dull frosty sky from the chimney of a thatched lime-washed cottage set amid barns and stacks. As the day grows, peasants such as Malay pictures come out of the cottages and follow the road, carrying faggots or baskets of potatoes and turnips. Two legs and a pair of sabots appear under a perambulating heap of hay. 
a big dog drags a small cart full of milk cans and a woman with a cap and tucked-up skirts trudges along beside blowing on her fingers to warm them all this just as did italy seems very familiar i know it quite well from pictures and books it gives one the sensation reversed awakened by reading a realistic novel in which all the little details of daily life are minutely and accurately reproduced it is ten o'clock when we reach calais and the dover boat has gone so there is time for a bath and breakfast luckily as i shall not have another meal for forty-eight hours but of this i have no prevision the channel is gray and stormy when we start and a gout of rain splashes now and then upon the deck fat old french gentlemen spread themselves out in chaise longues and make all necessary preparations for seasickness the english turn up the collars of their long coats thrust their hands in the pockets and stride along the rolling deck later the sun struggles through the clouds and turns the gloom to a stormy gray-green and shifting silver and there looms slowly through the mists the white cliffs of england for me this keen windy sea is thick with phantom sails the high-beaked galleys of the conqueror the silken wings of the white ship henry's fleet carrying victorious armies into france drakes and raleigh's prows galleons from the east certain small sailing craft going swiftly and furtively by dusk carrying fugitive monarchs the myriad wings of a nation of seabirds spread for pleasure or for prey starting two months ago from a vast continent which the english race have made their own where the english tongue english laws customs and manners reign from sea to sea in my whole course around the globe i have heard that same tongue seen the same laws and manners found the same race have had proof with my own eyes of the splendor of their empire of their power their wealth of their dominance and orgulousness of their superb armies their undreamable commerce their magnificent possessions their own unrivalled physical beauty and force and lo now at last i find from a tiny island ringed with gray seas has sprung this race of kings it fills my soul with a passion of pride that i too am an anglo-saxon in my veins too runs that virile tide that pulses through the heart of this lord of the earth the blood of this clean fair noble english race it is worth a journey round the world to see this royal throne of kings this sceptred isle this earth of majesty this seat of mars this other eden demi-paradise this fortress built by nature for herself against infestation and the hand of war this happy breed of men this little world this precious stone set in a silver sea this blessed plot of earth this realm this england this nurse this teeming womb of royal kings feared by their breed and famous by their birth renowned for their deeds so far from home for christian service and true chivalry this land of such dear souls this dear dear land england bound in with the triumphant sea 
and I understand now the meaning of this trumpet cry of love and pride from the greatest of earth's poets and Englishmen. Dover, and one sets foot at last on the mother's soil. We are, by the way, the only people who call our land a mother. The blue boudoir of a first-class carriage, then English landscapes under the level rays of a setting sun. Certain characteristics here are very reminiscent of Japan. The neatness and completeness of everything, the due allowance of trees dispersed in ornamental fashion, nature so thoroughly tamed and domesticated, the picturesque railway stations, and a certain moist softness in the air. But where everything there is light, fragile, and fantastic, here it is solid, compact, and durable. Like the English sea, the English land swarms with phantoms, the folk of history, of romance, of poetry and fiction. They troop along the roads, prick across the fields, look over the hedges, and peer from every window. I hear the clang of their armor, see the waving of their banners, their voices ring in the frosty winter air, their horses' hoofbeats sound along the paths. Without regard to time or period, to reality or non-reality, they come in hosts to welcome me, to say, And so you too have come to join us. We have waked to greet you. We are the ghosts of England's past. Even the folk of the contemporary fiction have not failed to be present. I see the sunk fence by the coppice where Angelina always bids Edwin an eternal farewell in the last chapter of the second volume, and they are there doing it now. There rides Captain Cavendish in his red coat, home from the hunting field, and on his way to the handsome old country house yonder, where he will squeeze Mrs. Fitzroy's fingers under the teacup he passes her, and thus lay the foundation for forty-two chapters of jealousy, hatred, and all uncharitableness. Darkness falls. A dull glare is reflected from the heavens that speaks the presence of a great gaslit city. A myriad sparks twinkle in the distance. The lights a London. Miles and miles and miles of houses. A huge shadowy half-globe looming against the sky the dome of St. Paul's, towers and delicate spires, and lights shining through many lance-like windows, parliament houses, where lords and commons sit in debate, long gleams quivering serpent-like across a wavering black flood. We have passed over the Thames, and here is Charing Cross. Clatter, hurry, and confusion, everyone giving different suggestions and directions. I had meant to remain overnight in London and take the North German Lloyd steamer at Southampton the next day, but here the news meets me that this ship has been suddenly withdrawn and will not sail until late in the week. My one chance is the night mail to Holyhead and to catch the Bothnia, which touches at Queenstown next morning. This train leaves in an hour and a half. I have not slept since two o'clock the night before, nor eaten since breakfast, and my courage is nearly at an end. One of my fellow travelers, who has been most kind to me all the way from Ceylon, comes to my rescue and assumes all responsibilities. 
I am sent off to the hotel to dine in company with two kind and charming fellow voyagers, Sir William Lewis and his daughter, while he arranges my difficulties. I am far too tired and disturbed, however, to eat, and can only crumble my bread and taste my wine. At half-past eight, my friend appears and carries me off to the Euston station. He has snatched his dinner, got rid of the dust of travel, and into evening clothes. He has brought rugs and cushions that I may have some rest during the night, a little cake in case I grow hungry, and heaps of books and papers. My foot warmer is filled with hot water, the guard is induced to give me his best care and attention, and then I go away alone again, somewhat comforted by the chivalrous goodness of the traveling man to the uncared-for woman. I fall asleep from fatigue, am shaken by horrible dreams, and start awake with a cry. The train is thundering through a wild storm. I try to read, but the words dance up and down the page. The guard comes now and then to see if I need anything, and deep in the night I reach Holyhead. Gathering up my multitudinous belongings, I run through the rain and sleet to the little vessel quivering and straining at the pier. The night is a wild one, the wind in our teeth, and the journey rough and very tedious. The cold and tempestuous day has dawned before we touch Kingstown and are hurried, wretched for lack of sleep and the means of making a fresh toilet, into the train for Dublin. The Irish capital is still unawake when I rattle across it from station to station this Sunday morning, and immediately I am off again at full speed through a land swept with flying mists and showers, a beautiful land, green even in January. Later I see ruddy-cheeked peasants going along the roads to church, a type I am familiar with in America. I gaze contemplatively at these sturdy young men and wonder how soon they will be New York aldermen and mayors of Chicago, how soon those rosy girls in their queer bunchy provincial gowns will be leaders of society in Washington and dressed by worth. I am growing frightfully hungry, having eaten nothing since yesterday morning in Calais. There is the spice cake, but with no liquid save a little brandy in a flask, I soon choke upon the cake and abandon it. The train is behind time, owing to the late arrival of the channel boat, and stops only for the briefest moments. At noon we reach Queenstown, having curved around a fair space of water and passed the beautiful city of Cork. The ship has not yet arrived, but will doubtless be here in a few moments, the bad weather having delayed her, and my luggage is all hurried down to the tender, where I should be sent to did I not wail with hunger. The Queen's Hotel is not far from the station, but the evil luck which has pursued me for the last two days ordains that the kitchen of this hostelry should be undergoing repairs at this particular moment, and no food is to be had. By dint of perseverance, in frantic protest and reckless objurgation, I finally secure a cup of rather cold and bitter tea and a bit of dingy bread that looks as if it had been used to scrub the floor with before being presented to me as a substitute for breakfast. I am warned to hold myself in readiness for an instantaneous summons to the tender, for when the steamer is signaled, there is no time to waste. 
so hastily i make such toilet as is possible with my dressing-bag aboard the tender and sit alone in the waiting-room attendant on the summons hour after hour goes by but no summons comes i dare not move lest the call come during my absence and sit there hopeless helpless overwhelmed with hunger lack of sleep and fatigue at six o'clock my patience is at end and i am clamorously demanding more food when they bring the long-expected notice the ship has been signaled and the tender must be off it rains in torrents mingled with sleet and the wind blows a tempest the tender puts out from shore and is whirled about like an eggshell the wind drives us back and over and over again we essay the passage before we can make head against the wild weather it is two hours and a half later when we get alongside the ship and i am chilled to the bone sick and dizzy for want of food and sleep and climb stumblingly across the narrow slippery plunging path that leads from one ship to the other no sooner have i set foot on the glassy deck than the push of an impatient passenger sends me with a smashing fall into the scuppers where i gather bruises that last a week a compassionate stewardess comes to the rescue and puts me to bed speechless and on the verge of tears the weather is terrible a season long to be remembered for the january storms of the north atlantic the waves toss our ship back and forth among them like a football even were i not too miserable to move the plunging of the vessel would make it impossible to keep one's feet the ship laboriously climbs a howling green mountain pauses irresolute a moment on the crest and then toboggans madly down the farther side her screw out of water and kicking both heels madly in the air to the utter dislocation of one's every tooth and joint down down she goes as if boring for bottom and when it is perfectly certain that she can never by any chance right herself she comes nose upmost with a jerk shakes off the water and attacks a new mountain to repeat the same performance on the farther side two-thirds of the passengers are very seasick and i quite as wretched and prostrate from my late painful experiences as if still subject to the malady it is the third or fourth day out and i am beginning to take heart of grace and to long to leave my stuffy little cabin the ship is rolling frightfully still and while revolving in my mind an attempt to rise a sudden lurch sends the heavy jug full of water flying out of its basin into the berth where it smashes into twenty pieces upon my face and chest and drenches me with icy water the doors of the gangway are left open lest they freeze together and therefore a bitter wind sweeps through the cabin so that when hauled from my dripping bed and it is discovered that the key of my box where are the only dry changes of garment is mislaid i am stabbed through and through my wet and clinging clothes by this terrible cold thus suppressed again for another three days it is only towards the end of the week the storm being abated that i am able once more to stand on my feet it is a most amiable and friendly little company that finally assembles in the cabin the recent woes we have all passed through having made us sympathetic and considerate 
we even get up in time a concert for the seamen's orphans and play shuffleboard on the still uncertain deck for prizes but this crossing of the zone of storms has greatly delayed us and it is late in the evening of the eleventh day when we take our pilot aboard the morning of the twelfth day is cold but evidently has some thought of clearing and the sea is less rough a rim of opaque film grows on the horizon that the emigrants on the forward deck regard with eager interest and hope the passengers stand about in furs pinched and shivering their noses red but their eyes full of pleased anticipation any land would be dear and desirable after near a fortnight of this cold and frantic sea but when it is one's own the film thickens and darkens and suddenly resolves itself into coney island where as we swiftly near the shore the plaintive reproachful eyes of the great wooden elephant are turned upon us as if to deprecate our late coming the water has smoothed itself into a bay, and a huge gray woman, holding an uplifted torch, awaits our coming. The emigrants regard her wonderingly, the symbol of liberty held aloft, and a benignant countenance turned towards all the outer world. We are by the shores of Staten Island. A pretty English girl who has braved the winter storms to follow her new husband to a foreign country remarks surprisedly that all this looks much like England, evidently having expected log cabins and a country town. But I have no time to be amused at her ignorance. I am saying joyously to myself, Is this the hill? Is this the kirk? Is this mine ain country? suddenly a great flood of familiarity washes away the memory of the strange lands and people i have seen and blots out all sense of time that has elapsed since i last saw all this i know how everything the streets the houses the passers-by are looking at this moment it is as if i had turned away my head for an instant and now looked back again my duties my cares my interests which had grown dim and shadowy in these last two months suddenly take on sharp outlines and become alive and real once more i feel as if i had but sailed down the bay for an hour and was now returning the ship slides into dock i can see the glad faces of my friends upon the pier my journey is done i have been around the world in seventy-six days the end end of chapter eight recording by holly jensen end of in seven stages a flying trip around the world by elizabeth bisland